from News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. There are two independent nonpartisan agencies who are focused on making state and local government work effectively and efficiently, the California State Auditor and the California Legislative Analyst. Recently, the longtime leaders of both watchdog agencies stepped down after decades of public service. What lessons have they learned, and what parting advice do they have to ensure that we continue to speak truth to power? First, we'll hear from Elaine Howell, the California State Auditor, and then we'll hear from Mac Taylor, who led California's Legislative Analyst Office. Two highly respected public servants who are considered the gold standard for what a public official should be. Funding for the Matty Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Matty Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Matty Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Matty Report with Executive Director of the Matty Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. We often hear about the need to eliminate fraud, waste, and abuse in state government. The mission of the state auditor's office is to, quote, promote the efficient and effective management of public funds and programs, unquote. If you're a state agency or a state employee, getting a note from the state auditor is probably like being pulled over by a police officer. You better have your papers in order. Our guest today is the current state auditor, Elaine Howe, who recently announced she's going to be retiring after 21 years of service in that position. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. You know, for those of folks who don't know about the State Auditor's Office, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. The State Auditor's Office has been around for a long time. And what we're required to do, we have statutory authority to conduct, we do financial audits. We audit the state's financial statements. We audit federal money that comes into California um, and to make sure state agencies use that money appropriately. But the biggest, the biggest amount of work that we do is performance auditing, looking at state agencies, local governments, and how well they are 
providing services to people in the, the regions in the state, either state agencies here in Sacramento or local governments. It, it was many years since I took a, a course in accounting. So, so I wanted to help me and our audience understand what an audit is, um, what triggers an audit, what happens after an audit is completed. Sure. The, the audit of the financial statements, that's an annual requirement in state law. So we go out to state agencies and make sure they're accounting for tax dollars appropriately and using those funds appropriately. Performance audit is, is uh, assigned to us essentially by the legislature. There's a joint legislative audit committee. There are seven senators on the committee, seven assembly members. One member uh, is assembly member, Mr. Patterson. So uh, we have a variety of different members, both sides of the aisle, some Democrats, some Republicans. And that committee meets a few times a year and hears requests from members of the legislature asking for our services. And once the committee approves those audits, uh, that becomes essentially a mandate for us to get the work done. So that's how probably about 75% of the work we do comes to us through that mechanism. And then what happened when, when you when you do an audit, then what it just, does it end up on someone's shelf or does action happen? <laughs> well, let's hope not. So um, we, you know, we get the, at the hearing, I will present an analysis of here's the questions, here's the concerns that the members have. And then what I will do is explain to the members the steps we will take as an office to answer those questions. So once the audit's approved, we assign staff, they get out in the field and we do complete an audit report. Uh, but what I have always told staff is that's not the end of the job for you. Now an important job starts and that's communicating the results to the public, uh, communicating the results to the legislature um, and helping people understand the issues we identified and why we think there needs to be change at a particular agency. And that's why we identified specific recommendations that need to be implemented. Yeah, you know, the other thing you do is, is you look into uh, whistleblower reports. Um, so you conduct those investigations when someone says, there's, listen, there's something improper going on in, in government. Um, what kind of conduct qualifies under the whistleblower statute? And um, what do you do when you receive a complaint? Right, so we have an investigative division uh, where we have a hotline, one 800 number. We have uh, the ability for people to file a complaint online. Anybody can file a complaint with a, with the state auditor's office with respect to improper governmental activity. Well, what does that mean? It could be somebody uh, on a state job doing personal uh, business, if they have a side business, doing that during state working hours, misuse of state resources, using state resources for personal benefit, um, travel expenses, uh, all kinds of things uh, that are illegal or improper or wasteful, inefficient. So my investigators receive those complaints, hopefully get enough information from the person who submitted the allegation to get us started. And then once we determine there's enough information there, we will pursue it. And then ultimately, if we substantiate, confirm that there is a, a problem or a violation of law, uh, we'll issue a report to that particular agency. And then two or three times a year, we issue a summary report of all the investigations we've completed. Yeah, it's, it's good that, that we have employees or, or people have a whistleblowers of a place to go to, to report wrongdoing. I want to ask one last thing in this segment. We've only got about a minute left. I want to ask you about the Citizens Redistricting, Redistricting Commission, um, which comes about every 10 years after uh, the census. You have a role to play. Your office has a role to play. What is that role and why your office? Oh, we have a huge role. Uh, we've done it twice. Uh, back in 2008, a proposition was passed by the voters requiring an independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. In the past districts, Assembly, Senate, and Board of Equalization Districts, those lines were drawn by legislators. 
and there was concerns about gerrymandering and you know Republicans working with the Dems to figure out what the district should look like. And the voters said, no, we want an independent commission. What my office was, was charged with doing is developing the process for educating the public about this commission and then ultimately putting a process together to look at applications and create a 14 member commission. So yeah, you, so, yeah you basically set it up then. Um, Absolutely. Okay, well, up next, we're going to find out how does someone become a state auditor? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howe, who recently announced her retirement after more than 36 years of service of auditing state government, 21 of those years as the state's auditor. You know, uh, uh, Elaine, if I may call you Elaine, you know, you've always been uh, a terrific guest. You've been our program a number of times. And one of the things that's always struck me about you, it's, it's never been about you. It's always about state government and how we can make state government better. And I I know I'm going to embarrass you with this a little bit, um, but since you're retiring, um, there's nothing you can do about it. I want to read some uh, from an editorial uh, that I read recently about your retirement. This is what they had to say about you. They said, Elaine Howe has always been an outstanding state auditor for California, a beacon in the fog, shining a light on waste, fraud, and abuse, and boondoggle projects that fail to live up to the promises made to the people of California. Elaine Howe has set the standard for what a public official should be dedicated to making government work efficiently and effectively, pursuing accountability when it falls short, and fearlessly standing up for public, the public interest. That's quite a legacy. Mm. Um, so what do you say to, um, to folks, and when you're saying, you say, you know, I, I was drawn to public service for this reason. Why, why did you get into this area of work? Well, it, it, it's kind of by mistake, um, <laughs> honestly. Um, when I went to college, I have an undergraduate degree in sport management, got a master's degree in business administration here in Sacramento, Cal State Sacramento. Um, and my career goal was to be uh, working for a major university and athletic director uh, as in a major university. But, you know, that was in the um, early 80s, not a lot of opportunities for women in that field. Uh, so my brother actually talked to me about, you should consider working in state government. He was working in the legislature as a, as a staffer and talked to me about the auditor general's office. And I said, I, I don't want to be an auditor. Are you kidding me? Um, so I uh, went ahead and applied for the job and thought, okay, I'll stay with the office for a couple of years. He said, you're going to learn a lot about state government. There might be a state agency that you want to work for. Um, and then when I got the job started in 1983, uh, so it is 38 years, um, and after a year or two, really fell in love with the work because there's so much variety, there's opportunity to problem solve, identify issues, and hopefully affect change. And I just, you know, uh, decided to stay here. I know that sounds crazy to uh, the younger generation to stay at one place for such a long time, but I really felt the work, the variety of the work, the diversity of what we got to do and the challenge. It's a really difficult job, but it can be very rewarding at the same time. I can see some kind of crossover between an athletic director and being a state auditor. I mean, you're monitoring activity and when people step out of line, you're the one who's got to step in and say, nope, that's not acceptable. You're violating the rules here. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's some similarity and, and we appreciate your service in that regard. I want to ask you, though, who appoints the state auditor? I mean, how does the process work? You know, is it usually unanimous vote or does it do they vote along party lines? How does that happen? Well, the times that I was selected as state auditor, I was initially appointed state auditor in August of 2000. Um, and the way the process works, this it's in state law that the Joint Legislative Audit Committee actually submits three nominees to the governor and the governor ultimately appoints 
But what the audit committee traditionally has done when they nominated me initially back in 2000, it was a unanimous recommendation that here are the three names, but we unanimously uh, recommend that you appoint Elaine Howell as the state auditor. So I was obviously very blessed to have that uh, decision made. Uh, and Gray Davis appointed me in 2000. And then the subsequent times I was reappointed to the position. It was the same situation where the audit committee sent those three names, but as part of their communication, they let the governor know we unanimously um, suggest that Elaine Howell be reappointed. So I would assume the process is going to be very similar uh, going forward. Uh, well, we hope so. Well, as we've noted, the California State Auditor is tasked with providing an unbiased assessment of government programs. Sometimes the results are positive and show the state agency is doing things that they're intended uh, and set up to do. Other times, uh, there are some problems and bureaucrats and, and politicians may not like being called out for mismanagement or worse. What are some of the more notorious examples of, quote, fraud, waste and abuse that the state auditor has seen during her career? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. We're talking with Elaine Howell, a long-serving state auditor uh, who recently announced her retirement. You know, you've covered the gamut of state uh, agencies uh, in your work. One of the most notorious audits that you did was one that you did kind of recently, and that concerned the mismanagement at the state's economic uh, development department. Uh, some have reported uh, can result as, will result in as much as $20 billion in fraudulent job, jobless claims uh, paid to criminals and con artists, among others. How in the world did that happen? Yeah, we, we issued two audits in earlier this year, in January of 2021. The legislature, the audit committee, came to us in September uh, with an emergency audit request because constituents were you know, just really frustrated with trying to work with EDD, Employment Development Department, to get their claims filed so that they could get some benefits. Um, so we issued two reports, one looking at the process for claims and the other looking at fraud. And as you said, Mark, the fraud was significant. When we issued the audit, it was $10 billion. I know it's upwards of close to $20 billion. Recently at a, a committee hearing, the director of the department uh, acknowledged that it's going to be around $20 billion. Um, and our frustration as the state auditor's office is we issued a report 10 years ago talking to EDD and explaining to them and analyzing their claims process, their call center, and identified weaknesses that they could have addressed years ago. Also, there was a, a re audit request back in 2018, uh, 2019, when we conducted some work looking at identity theft and protecting social security numbers and uh, recommending to EDD that there are certain forms you're sending out to people and you're leaving their full SSN on there and that is risky. Mm -hmm. And we said, you've got to find a way to truncate it. We gave them options, but they didn't take us up on those and never implemented that recommendation. And lo and behold, during the pandemic, we saw thousands of documents going to different addresses, suspicious addresses, et cetera. So in all likelihood, there are thousands of Californians who have had their identity stolen because EDD didn't fix these problems years ago when we, when we told them about them back then. And I think that's why a lot of members of the legislature are even more frustrated than they perhaps would have been uh, if they had you know, had addressed some of these issues. Now, pandemic is significant, of course, we've got to acknowledge that, but you knew about these problems years ago and you didn't address them. That would have mitigated some of the issues that uh, people yeah. are, are facing uh, these last two years. Yeah, $20 billion, I mean, that's just eye-popping numbers. Uh, yeah. Rob, there's also uh, some reports on the costly delays and failures associated with uh, the uh, Fiscal Technology Project. It's a billion dollar technology project supposed to overhaul the state's accounting system. Um, this has been a decade long mess, apparently. 
uh, pretty amazing that a state known for technology can't seem to put together a technology project. Yeah, this is a huge project. And as you said, it's been going on for years. And when, when Fiscal originally was launched, the legislature put in state law that the state auditor's office would monitor the project. And we have been doing that and issuing reports, at least on an annual basis, because we're required to in January. And, and yeah, unfortunately, this project has really struggled. It was intended to be a big project as far as accounting, budgeting, procurement. It has been cut back as far as its functionality, yet the, the costs continue to rise and balloon. And, and our most recent report talked about Fiscal suggesting that the project is complete which is not correct. Uh, there's a lot that still needs to be done. The state's financial statements aren't even finished yet because agencies struggle to use Fiscal for the accounting purposes. So it's a project that has just struggled from day one and continues to struggle. Unfortunately, it's very expensive for the state of California. Well, it's something the next state auditors are going to have to be looking at, looking at uh, apparently. Um, yeah, but it, it is kind of a, it is amazing that that they haven't been able to get their act together for a decade. Um, now you also regularly examine what's called high risk, quote unquote, issues and agencies that need more scrutiny for quote unquote, fraud, waste and abuse and mismanagement of major or major challenges associated with economy efficiency or effectiveness. So what are some examples of some of the findings in that regard? Yeah, we have two states. Uh, high-risk programs, a state high-risk program and a local government high-risk program. So the state mm -hmm. high-risk program allows us, based on our institutional knowledge of the work that we've done over the years, to identify issues that are uh, you know, at risk of being wasteful, et cetera. So a, a perfect example is emergency preparedness. How well prepared is California to deal with fires, floods, earthquakes, in all likelihood are, are um, going to happen in California. So how well are we prepared from a, a local perspective, working with the state, working with the federal government? That's an example. Uh, information technology procurement uh, is an issue that we've had on our high-risk list for a long time. What that allows us to do is conduct audits at our own initiative. We don't have to wait for the legislature to tell us about that. Local high-risk program is where we have assessed the fiscal health of all cities in California. So we actually have a dashboard on our website that people can look at. And we have about four years worth of data. So we're starting to develop trend analyses and looking at which cities are in trouble uh, from a fiscal perspective. We've done some analysis based on the pandemic. Uh, we're, we hired an economist to help us do some projections. So I think there's really good information out there for uh, people of California to look, how is my city doing? compared to cities nearby. Why is my city struggling when cities nearby are not? So we think that's a valuable tool that we've uh, developed over the last few years. Well, that's tremendously valuable because people can, yeah, like you said, can look on exactly what their local government is doing. And I encourage people to log on your website and, and check that out. It's a way to keep local officials uh, held them accountable. Absolutely. Yeah, when we launched that dashboard, it was interesting. We got a lot of constituents calling us and, and in fact, uh, city council members, yeah, I, I city bet. managers, why are we in the red? Well, this is why you're in the red. So it really did trigger change immediately. Yeah. Well, up next, we're going to see what parting advice the state auditor has for California. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howell, who's the current state auditor, who's retiring after more than 20 years of service in that position. You know, despite the high nature profile of your job, there's been very little turnover. I mean, you've been in that position for, for 21 years. Um, that's a long time for a person to be head of, of a state agency, for sure. Uh, do you think that type of longevity is going to continue in the future? 
I certainly hope so. I think one of the benefits of the office and, and what I've explained to members is, I think the reason I've been able to be effective is of course, because I have very talented staff, but I've been in this organization for a long time and I started out as an entry level auditor and worked my way up and really understand what it takes to do the job, um, but also willing to understand that we need to continually improve and develop uh, new techniques of conducting audits, new techniques of communicating. Um, 21 years is a long time. I think a lot of people were surprised that I stayed this long, but uh, if you love the work and you are passionate about it, uh, it, it just makes sense to stay. I couldn't think of doing anything else. Yeah, um, you know, I want to ask you this though, and it kind of it ties into the same thing. You have an impeccable record of being nonpartisan, but are you at all concerned that the state auditor's office is going to go the way of what a lot of politics has gone these days, becoming hyper-partisan? I think we need to be very careful with that. And, and the good news is in talking with members of the legislature, members of JLAC, they all understood that when I talked to them, I said, one of the key things that I would advise you as far as selecting my successor is make sure that there isn't any appearance of partisanship or political agenda or anything. It needs to be someone who is nonpartisan independent because that is the credibility and the integrity of this office. Um, and the benefit to all Californians is this office has been able to maintain that impartial nonpartisan uh, stature. Uh, and it's critically important to continue that. There's no question it brings a gravitas you know, to what you do and people pay attention because they know there's no agenda there. Um, you're just reporting the numbers and what, you, what you're finding. You know, I want to ask you this, you know, you're looking at the qualities of the next state auditor. What kinds of qualities do you think are important for someone in that position? Well, it, uh, you know, I, now that I'm leaving, I can say this. It's a hard job. Uh, it's a 24-7 job. Uh, but, but I think the qualities that you need is, is the nonpartisan, the ability to be objective, uh, steadfast as far as making sure that, you know, you support your staff who work here. We go out, we find the evidence. We do the analysis, we reach conclusions, and we make recommendations, and some people will push back on that. But if we continue as an organization to do our due diligence, follow standards, remain impartial and objective, uh, then the office will continue to be successful. So whoever my successor is needs to really um, be passionate about that and support the staff uh, and, and be steadfast with, you know, hey, this is what the evidence tells us. Speak the truth to power. I say that all the time to my mm -hmm. staff and to the members of the legislature. It's interesting. If anybody reads your reports and then reads the, the agency's response, mm -hmm. there's also a response to the response. That's right. And the, the bottom line, I guess you'd say, is you have your staff's back. Uh, and you'll yeah. say, well, you know, wait a second, you know, you got this, you know, and you, you'll respond. Um, and so I think the staff undoubtedly appreciates the support you provide. Now, let me ask you this, a little more general question. Um, you're undoubtedly a role model for a lot of women who want to work in government um, you know, in a very high profile position. Who is your role model uh, when you got started and what advice would you give to women who are just beginning their careers in public service? Um, well, speaking about a role model, I think the person that had the most influence on me is my mom. Um, it's, she's been gone a long time, but uh, she made sure that her girls, uh, my sister and I, had the exact same opportunities that my brothers had as far as going to college, pursuing professional careers. She said, don't underestimate what you can do. You know, you're a woman. And it's, you know, at that, in those days, back in the 70s, when I was in high school and college, it's a man's world. But she said, that does not mean you can't be successful. So reach for the stars because you can do it. And she made sure that my sister and I had the same opportunities my brothers 
brother, my two brothers did as far as going to college and pursuing professional careers. My sister's been very successful, of course, my brothers as well. Um, so my mom was is the one that I would always say is the number one role model. She was a really bright woman, very tough. Um, and I just tried. We all, to, we all need a parent like that, you know, in right. our corner. She, she was terrific. So uh, that would be, she is my role model. Absolutely. And what, would, what advice would you give to young women today? It's a little different than when you started. I mean, frankly, you were a trailblazer. It, yeah. You did not see a lot of women in high profile positions in state government. It's changing. Um, you know, we did a recent report on the, you know, the top unelected people in state government. Majority now in the top 10 are women. Um, so it's changing. But what advice would you give? We only got about 10, 15 seconds. What quick advice would you give? Mm -hmm. Don't ask, uh, don't underestimate what you can accomplish. Don't let anybody tell you you can't accomplish things. You have to be tough. It's going to be difficult at times, but you can do it. Reach for the stars. You absolutely that's, can do it. That's great advice. I want to thank Elaine Howell, the state auditor, for being on our program and for being such a, a wonderful state auditor all these many years. And thank you for joining us. This is Mark Kepler for The Maddie Report. If you want to stay up to date on state and local politics, you can sign up for our free e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily, by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. When one thinks of the most influential recent watchdogs of state government, a conversation wouldn't be complete without mentioning Mac Taylor. Up next, a conversation we had with him when he retired a couple of years ago. After 40 years with the California Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office and the last 10 years as its chief, Mac Taylor is retiring, just the fifth person to serve in that position in the office's 77-year history. We'll ask him how state politics and public policy debates, particularly over the state budget, have changed over his time in state government, and why integrity and civility still matter when it comes to crafting good public policy. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Perhaps no one is more well-known and influential in the State Capitol and unknown to most Californians as our guest, Mac Taylor, California's Legislative Analyst. He's stepping down after 40 years with the Legislative Analyst Office, the last 10 years as its leader. I've asked him to kind of get his unique perspective on California's political process generally and the state budget in particular. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Nice to be with you, Mark. Um, so how would you describe the work of the Legislative <coughs> Analyst Office? Well, the office was uh, set up in 1941, and um, the legislature at that first time... First one in the country, right. First one in the country, um, and I think the legislature was tired of being dependent on the executive branch. And so it wanted its own information source. So I think the two really important things about the office is that we are legislative staff serving the legislature as an institution. And we have a mission to examine the operations of state and local governments and try to come up with ideas to make them work either better or, or more efficiently. Uh, so my folks, in, we, we go out and we look at programs and we talk to people and we try to 
provide information for the legislature so they can do their oversight role. Yeah, kind of the fraud, waste, and abuse that people always focus on with state government. Not so much the fraud aspect, but, you know, the waste. Maybe how can you do things more efficiently and more effectively uh, as a state government? Yeah, I don't think you have to go to the fraud and waste from right. stuff. Certainly state auditor can handle, can handle the... Well, no, but it, it's just even in our own lives and the things that, that we deal with, you can do things better. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. You know, people hear the term legislative in your title, and I think they think your office is somehow partisan, that you might do the bidding of whatever legislative party is in power. That's not it at all, is it? Well, we don't think so. <laughs> uh, this, the second legislative analyst, a gentleman by the name of A. Allen Post, which only old-timers will now remember, uh, he really set up the reputation of the office as operating in a nonpartisan manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really one of the most crucial things that the way we operate, it describes the way we operate. Um, and, you know, I've been, as you said, been here in the office for 40 years, uh, almost equal time with Republican governors and Democratic governors. And we've done our job exactly the same way, no matter sort of who's in that position. You know, it's interesting. The LAO is oftentimes compared to the Federal Congressional Budget Office or the CBO, but the LAO actually, your office operates a little differently than the CBO. How so? Well, like we said, we, we were established in 41. The CBO was, was created in the mid-70s. And I think they looked around and certainly looked at our office as one model that they might want to emulate. Um, and it's a great office. They have some incredibly talented, capable people. But there's one thing that they don't do. They don't make recommendations. Mm -hmm. So that if they did a report on some topic, they might offer options. But they wouldn't recommend that, Congress, you do this. Right. And I think they felt, uh, the drafters of the law that created CBO, I think just felt it would make it too visible, too controversial. I, I think it makes it more difficult. If you're making recommendations, you're sticking your head out there a little bit, and someone is not going to be happy. But uh, we have, we've always done that. We don't do it in every case, mm -hmm. but uh, we try to push to recommendations, again, to help the legislature in, in, in helping them think about what direction they might want to go. Because they can always push back for whatever, if they have reasons and justifications, Absolutely. it sharpens the decision-making process. I think that's the point. We're trying to help them make as good as decisions as possible. You know, um, the LAO is probably best known for its work on the budget. Um, and I, you know, I said this to you the first time we met. I'm going to say it again um, the last time we meet here. A longtime Capitol reporter had a unique way of describing the work of your office, and I think this is a great quote. He said, quote, think of the LAO as the conscience of the, of the Capitol. Collectively, they are the skunk that ruins the, bu the budget garden party that the governor and legislature would otherwise enjoy every year, unquote. So would you describe your role in the state budget process? Yeah. And by the way, the skunk is a compliment. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why you like the skunk metaphor here, Mark. <laughs> Um, our role, we're, we're primarily known for our budget role uh, as sort of a mm -hmm. fiscal office. It's not all we do with policy issues, too, but we always have had a strong budget role. So uh, when the governor's budget comes out each January, one of our biggest job is helping the legislature understand what is in the budget, describing what's in the budget, assessing it, offering alternatives, perhaps, to what the governor has proposed. We also have a strong role in doing fiscal forecasts. We do uh, expenditure, revenue, economic forecasts. And we're the only office that is, is, in effect, a counterpart to the administration's estimating group. And I think, again, that helps the legislature have their own independent voice on those key matters. Because sometimes, if you go forward, we have had governors who have kind of, I don't want to say lowballed it, but they've been very conservative in their, in their revenue estimates um, because they don't want to spend as much money. You can come in and say, well, wait a second, the revenues are a little better, or vice versa. It, uh, happened, it happened the other way, I remember, in a prior administration where they uh, had a a factor that they'd added for economic growth or something, and we're going to have a billion dollars more. And I think, uh, again, the, the legislature has somebody can turn to just assess those claims. 
and sometimes offer them an alternative to them, but hopefully just help them have a richer and better understanding of what their fiscal situation is. Okay, well more of our, with our conversation with Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, who's retiring after working at the state capitol since Jerry Brown was first elected governor back in 1978. Some things don't change. Puts things in perspective. You're both leaving at the same time. Um, so, can we tell us a little bit about your background? Um, you know, what drew you to public service generally and the LAO in particular? Well, I was a political science major in college, and like a lot of young people, you know, you're interested in in the issues of the day, the current current events, and things. Um, and I was fortunate to have a, a professor there who uh, showed me some internships and got me involved that way and uh, turned me on to public policy programs, which are master's programs that are sort of have quantitative and economic um, uh, emphasis in their, in their programs. And I think as I went through school, I got much more interested in policy than maybe and in you're politics. Very, you're very humble. I, you know, I, you went to Princeton. It's a school that a lot of us, you know, wow, that's a very impressive. And, and then you graduate from Princeton. In 1978, you take a job with the LAO. The timing. Timing was not great. <laughs> I'd accepted in the spring of that year, and uh, then Proposition 13 passed, right. which were all sorts of accounts. Oh, this is going to decimate you know, state and local services. Turn the car around. Yeah, I'm coming across country thinking, man, I don't even have a job. Oh, man, that's, that's pretty interesting. But, uh, but the LAO was, uh, was clearly uh, an obvious choice if you were coming back to California. If you wanted mm -hmm. to do, especially nonpartisan, policy work, that's one place you would certainly apply. Yes, you were more focused, it seems, on policy than politics. Yes, absolutely, and, and more so as I went through school. Yeah. Um, so who appoints a legislative analyst? How does that selection process work? Is it always a unanimous selection? How does that work? Well, we actually um, uh, have a joint committee, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, that oversees the office and makes the appointment for the legislative analyst. Uh, and, they, and they've only had to do that four times in the, in the 77 years. Um, and there, there's no process laid out necessarily. I, uh, necessarily, it has to follow uh, certain steps or anything. I think the past couple of times you've had a subcommittee that's made up of both Democrats and Republicans to try to winnow through the candidates and come up with a selection. But it's not always unanimous, no. But I would think, though, that you know, that's an incredibly important position. And if you want to kind of, you know, kind of have uh, public policy discussions turn in a certain direction, there'd be a lot of pressure to get your person in as a legislative analyst, how do you keep that process kind of pure? You know, I think the, the members have realized that the office is a little bit different in mm -hmm. the way it was set up and what it does. And, um, you know, you'd like to think they'll do that, they'll do that again because I think they realize what is required to, to maintain that sort of nonpartisanship. So um, what are some of the essential qualities that you think are important in a legislative analyst? Well, I think you could list, uh, you know, a lot of things uh, if, for anybody heading up any mm -hmm. sort of office. I, I think a couple of essential ones, though. It has to be a person who has that, that nonpartisan background that has either done work like that, can relate to it, and would be accepted to all parties, not, not just the two parties in the legislature, but the perception throughout state government this is a person that, that we can deal with. But I think you, you do have to have an analytically rigorous person. I, th I think it helps to have uh, some strong quantitative skills, to have a background in public finance, because those are the kind of issues that I've had to deal with, my predecessors have had to deal with. And so having that kind of background, I think, can be extraordinarily helpful. You were talking about your predecessor, your, your most recent predecessor, the person right before you was Elizabeth Hill. She was the first woman to head up the California Legislative Analyst Office. She did that for 22 years. Uh, that's hard to believe. That was a long time. What did you learn from her? Oh. Well, I was fortunate to be a deputy 
under Liz for like 17 years, so I did get to work with her very closely, and hopefully I picked up just either through osmosis a lot of things, because Liz had a lot of remarkable qualities. She was incredibly hardworking, very methodical. Uh, she had a great way with people, whether they were inside the office or outside the office, uh, and a, just a person of really high integrity. Um, so, you know, just watching her work uh, was, a, was a great sort of way to, to, uh, to mentor. I remember asking her a question once, and she was, boom, the answer, a lot like you, boom, the answer right away, and also was expecting a follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was, I said, boy, you better be on your toes when you're around this person. Incredibly well-prepared, always. Yeah. Um, anyone else role model for you? Well, you know, I think you learn from just, I, I've had the pleasure of working with incredibly talented people over those 40 years, both inside the office and, and outside in state government. Um, but I think my first, the first analyst that I worked for, Bill Hamm, who was Liz's predecessor, uh, and took over for it from AL and Post. And uh, uh, Bill was another person of great integrity, but also did incredibly sharp. He was one of the most analytically rigorous people I've, I've run into and was able to quickly get to the nub of an issue, right. which I think given all the things that you have to deal with, it was a quality that I really admired, his ability to, whether it was editing a document and quickly get to what is it that we need to say. Uh, so I certainly would include him in the, the, the people I consider as mentors. You know, I was practicing law uh, before I did, did this job, and I used to work with someone who was just that same way. I mean, he could hit the issue, get rid of all the noise, get right to the point. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, get rid of all, all, the, all the background stuff. Well, the California Legislative Analyst is often asked to provide an unbiased assessment on most of, the, most of the critical public policy issues facing the state. So what is it like to be asked to block out all the political noise and dispassionately analyze the state's most critical public policy issues? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with the retiring California legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, uh, who po politicians of all stripes look to for an unbiased assessment regarding some of the most significant public policy issues facing the state of California. So I imagine that one of your greatest challenges came during the Great Recession, uh, with this multi-billion dollar budget shortfalls and the, the state's general budget crisis. And I recall you saying when we first met uh, during that time that uh, the state was looking at $20 billion shortfalls, or deficits, as far as the eye could see. Um, and to put it in perspective, the budget at the time was about $100 billion. So that was a pretty big chunk of money. Uh, you've had to make some pretty tough calls over the time. Uh, you've referred to some ideas put out by certain governors as quote-unquote ill-conceived, and your analysis seems to have its effect more often than not. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the Great Recession. Uh, I took over the office really right at the time when we were learning how bad things were. Yeah, I was, we were talking before we started the, the, the taping today, and I was saying, you know, you started with Proposition 13, uh, at LAO, and then you became the LAO at the Great Recession. I'm wondering what's going to happen now. What, that what do you say? I'm an omen for. I'm a bad omen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a really tough time, um, and the news just got worse and worse. Twenty billion. That would have been great if that was the worst of our problems. And so you sort of felt bad. You were always going to the legislative leadership, telling them, "I'm sorry. You know, it's your problem is now even worse after you've taken all these action to correct your your problem." But I, I hope the office uh, was able to help in the sense of. Um, Again, providing our fiscal forecast, I think, was, was very helpful because they had numbers that were not just from the administration that they could assess their, their situation. We talked a lot about out years and structural mm -hmm. problems to see if your problem was going to get worse, was it getting better, to give them a little bit longer perspective. Right, it took them out of that short-term focus and, you know, 
further out. And we talked a lot about the whole revenue volatility. Why were we in this situation? And we were, I think, one of the first to sort of talk so about would, that. Some could argue that it may have gotten worse over time. It has gotten a little bit worse over time. It, it has. Yeah. Uh, but even just helping people understand what revenue volatility meant. Right. And then what does that mean? Well, it means you have a couple of ways to deal with it, one of which was building reserves, right. which we stressed. And we have made tremendous progress in that area. Yeah. Um, you know, um, a Sacramento Bee reporter once told me that one topic that generates the most responses from his readers were stories on California's unfunded liabilities generally, but specifically about the state's unfunded public employee retiree liabilities. You know, the governor's talked about this thing called a structural deficit. Is that what he's talking about? No, it's a little bit different. The okay. structural deficit typically is just comparing how much money you got coming in with your spending commitments. Okay. And typically, if you're spending more and it goes on for many years, you've got a structural problem, okay. not just a one-time problem. The unfunded liabilities can be related to that issue. Okay. Um, but the unfunded liabilities are really someone's problem from the past that is carried over to you. It means we didn't fund them when we should have. And now we have these responsibilities that you still have to take care of. There are some big ticket items there. You're talking about public employee pensions, you know, including teacher pensions. You're talking about public employee retirement uh, health care. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. There are billions and billions. There are hundreds of billions of dollars. But I think what people need to, to look at maybe a little more closely, you do need to look at the size of the, of the numbers, but you really then need to ask, is the legislature budgeting in their annual budget? Are they providing mm -hmm. for funds that will take care of that problem over time? So he's sort of amortizing those liabilities in the same way that you pay off a mortgage over 30 years. So we've done a lot better job, the legislature and the governor in recent years, to recognizing those liabilities and providing funding streams that will help reduce the nature of those problems. And I, I'm feeling we're going to be talking about this for a while. Oh, yes. It's not going to go away. Whole other, whole but we have, we have made some really good progress in recent years. Yeah. Well, let me kind of switch gears a little bit, talk about another one of the duties of the LAO, and that's to provide a, a financial analysis of the propositions on the California ballot. Uh, I imagine that explaining the real cost of some of these measures, particularly when they're popular, probably going to annoy some people and please others. Uh, any particular situations come to mind? And how'd you handle it? Well, I'm not sure I want to talk about particular situations. <laughs> no names. Um, but you know, it is um, become, it's the one thing we do that's not a legislative function. We don't do it for the legislature, we do it in effect for the people as a whole, and there was responsibility given to us. And it's a really important one that we take very seriously. And we know these measures are controversial. You think about the things that have been improved in recent years, uh, some of the more controversial things have been on the ballot. Yeah. What we do, though, I think, to try to deal with it is we always meet with proponents and opponents. And we want to hear what they have to say. They typically provide us with lots of good information. Uh, we challenge them. We press them on their claims. Um, but they know that we want to hear from them. Yeah, i got to tell you, when I, was, when I was reading that about the LAO, I was kind of surprised. I thought maybe you'd kind of keep yourself above the fray and kind of do a dispassionate analysis and not talk to anybody. But actually, I can see the point of getting in there and hearing what is your best argument for, what's your best argument against. Oh, we like to talk to lots of people, not just yeah. proponents and opponents. There may be other people mm -hmm. who are more disinterested. Stakeholders. Whatever information people want to give us, and then we try to have to sift through it because oftentimes we're told exactly opposite, contrary right. things right. by the proponents and right. opponents. So we're going to have to find our way through it. But we certainly have found that that process, I think, helps give people confidence that we're at, we are at least listening to them. Yeah, and that, and that means a lot. And I want to ask one last question in the segment. That is about a related issue, uh, ballot box budgeting, the practice of making these major budget decisions by propositions. What makes these things particularly challenging is that unlike the normal budget process, these things are commonly written into the California Constitution and can't be changed unless you have another ballot measure. I mean, what are your thoughts on ballot box budgeting? It's even worse than that. Even if they're not constitutional, they're statutory. They can only be changed by a sub subsequent vote of the people. 
So it really restricts the legislature. And my concern, and what I find really to be a very bad trend, is that when we've passed tax increases on cigarettes, on cannabis, on millionaires, they've had designated ways they wanted to spend that money as opposed to just putting it into our general fund. Right. And that means those priorities that the proponents of those measures set up in that year, those are your priorities now from now in perpetuity. Forever, right. And that's just contrary, in my view, to good budgeting. Okay. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the importance of integrity and civility in the political process. That conversation in a moment. This is the Matty Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. We're talking with retiring California legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, about the need, people might say now more than ever, for a credible fact-based source of information and analysis regarding public policy issues facing the state. You know, um, despite the fact that the LAO has had to take uh, some positions, recommendations that might upset the governor or the legislature from time to time, there's been very little turnover in your position. You're just the fifth um, legislative analyst over the last 77 years. Uh, are you at all concerned that this hands-off approach may change in this age of hyper-partisanship? Well, I mean, I think you're always concerned just because the office is a little bit different and you are, as you said, you're in a partisan environment. So, I mean, that's always an, an issue that's out there. But I have to tell you, the legislature has, has really been great about letting us do our job. I mean, in 10 years, no, no member has ever called me over and in any way tried to influence the way that we did our job. So it, it doesn't mean that they, all, they accept what we say all the time. And, but they do not, if, you, they, if you agree with them. Well, if they, if they agree with us, they like to use our as supporting right. evidence. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. We're right. supposed to present our information, and they can do with it whatever they want because right. we're, we're the staff. But I think that they have been great about letting us do our job mm -hmm. and, and, and not interfering with that analytical process. That, that's pretty amazing. You know, uh, Senator uh, Patrick Moynihan once famously remarked that uh, you have the right to your own opinion, but you don't have a right to your own facts. Um, Today, it seems that's one of the problems, that people can't agree on just what are the facts. Um, what do you think needs to be done to help foster a better understanding of what are the facts? Well, maybe, you know, process is really important, which is why I think you have a budget process, you have hearings on bills, and it shouldn't just be sort of pro forma things. The pro that hearing is to help you determine what are the most appropriate facts. How reliable are we? Can we have confidence in them? And I think a lot of times we just have to... Um, understand that, uh, you know, people come at things differently. Uh, you and I might agree to a two or three facts, but you might weight the importance of those facts differently. So I think if we spent more time understanding why is it that we differ, why is it that we weight different, uh, different facts differently, or our understanding of those facts differ, I think we could probably get a long ways further down the road of at least understanding what our differences are, and we can approach those things in a perhaps more civil way. Yeah, one of the things that they, they used to say about Senator Matty was that he said about his opponents, never assume the worst in your opponent, assume the best intentions of your opponent. They're, you're both aiming at point B, the same maybe goal, just have a different perspective on how to get there. You may be, you may not be, but whatever, you want to try to understand what your, your, that person is trying to do right. and what is it the way they're going about it. I always tell, you know, I always, when I look for arguments that are being made by my own staff, uh, sometimes I want them to, okay, now make the other case. Because that will show, do you really understand the other person's position and right. what is the strongest sort of opposing points that help you then hopefully get closer to the truth? Yeah, we actually encourage our students to do legislative internships. If you're a Democrat, go work in a Republican office. Uh, if you're a Republican, go work in a Democratic office. One of two things are going to happen. Either one, you're going to modify your positions based on new information, or it's going to strengthen your position because you've heard the best arguments and you think yours are better. I think that's really good. So, um, well, let me ask you this, this last, one last question. I think it's extremely important this day and age. You know, you've been lauded for your integrity and civility. Um, 
Why do you think those are so essential in crafting good public policy? Well, I'm, I'm, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I think um, there's a lot of gray area in most public policy issues. Mm -hmm. I think when you come at it from a very partisan way, your ideology might sort of determine where you're going to be on the issue. But in fact, issues are complex. There's oftentimes not good data. And so I think it helps if you have a certain amount of humility about what you know, what you think you know. And if you have that, you're at least going to be more willing and more open to maybe someone changing your mind or, or slightly modifying your view to make it a stronger, better one. So I think civility is just a way of appreciating that there, there, there is much that you have that you can learn about something. And then again, you're going to treat your, this other person who might think differently from you with, a, with respect. What about integrity? Well, I think integrity is particularly important for, for the office. I think we have to have almost higher standards because in a partisan world, we need to be respected by both sides, with all players mm -hmm. in the capital scene. They don't have to agree with us. They may not appreciate the way we did an analysis, but I would hope that they would feel like the analyst goes about things and they try to do things in an analytically sound way, that they're fair, that they're open to hearing from a lot of people. Wise advice uh, from retiring California legislative analyst, Mac Taylor. I want to thank you for being on the program, but also for 40 years of public service. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Um, if you want to learn more about state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Twitter, Facebook, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for the Mad Report. Thanks for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.